what, what is it that people are willing to, to risk their lives for? How can we actively be with them in the struggle for which they are willing to risk their lives? Welcome to Think and Resist, conversations about feminism and peace. This podcast is a series that explores how feminism can redefine security and address some of the most pressing challenges of our time. My name is Alison Pitlack, and I work in WILF's disarmament program. I'm Genevieve Riccoboni, and I work in WILF's Women, Peace and Security program. I'm Serene Hamid. I'm in the Women, Peace and Security program. So today we're going to be speaking about women human rights defenders. In the previous episodes of this season, we focused on a variety of different issues, including climate and security, the arms trade, masculinities, that we think are really important to address from a feminist lens, um, especially in order to prevent conflict and violence. In this final episode of the series, we're going to be wrapping up by talking about some of the people who are working to advance a more, a more just world, and specifically women human rights defenders. So women human rights defenders around the world are doing really important work to advocate for change at all levels in the face of the interconnected crises that we've been talking about throughout this season. They're speaking truth to power, they're challenging governments, armed groups, corporate interests, and really challenging so many different systems and actors that have a vested interest in maintaining an unequal and unjust status quo. But at the same time, they're also facing increased restrictions on the spaces that are available to them to actually safely and freely do this work. And these, these include a variety of different things. So, for example, there are government restrictions on NGO operations. There is limited access to funding. There is active suppression of free speech and expression. And in addition, there are also increased direct reprisals against human rights defenders, which can take the form of threats, violence, harassment, intimidation, and even assassinations. And in 2021, at least 358 human rights defenders were killed, um, according to an analysis by Frontline Defenders and the International Consortium Human Rights Defenders Memorial. And so Throughout this episode, we have three really fantastic guests who will be speaking to us about who women human rights defenders are, why their work is so important, um, both for gender equality and for peace, and why ending reprisals and restrictions against them is really critical and urgent. So welcome, and thank you all so much for joining us today on the podcast. Can you please introduce yourselves and explain a little bit about the work you do? My name is Sabira Hamidi, and I work uh, right now. I'm uh, working with Amnesty International as a, in the regional campaigner. Uh, I am from Afghanistan, and I uh, focus on Afghanistan's uh, human rights work, uh, which also includes uh, working on human rights defenders situation, including women human rights defenders situation in Afghanistan. Uh, my name is Ina Mikhaili. Um, and I'm here as a um, director of programs as, uh, of AWID, Association for Women's Rights and Development, which is a global feminist movement support organization. I'm Diana Yangoda. I am the protection coordinator cov uh, covering South Asia for Frontline. And um, I'm based out of Sri Lanka. So uh, Frontline uh, Defenders is a global organization. They're headquartered in Dublin. We um, support human rights defenders at risk, at risk because of their link to their human rights work. 
before we kick it off, really, can we ground the discussion and maybe some definitions for our audience? So what do we mean by the term women human rights defenders? Um, and what kind of work do women human rights defenders do? When, as women, we are working on changing the world, we have all kinds of names for what we do and who we are. And sometimes we don't even have names for it. We just do what we feel is needed right now in the world, in our communities. Um, and we can call ourselves um, feminists or activists or part of LGBTQI or any other community um, or community organizers or leaders. And, and many of us have never heard about this term as women human rights defenders. And of course, it can also be um, uh, trans or gender diverse or non-binary human rights defenders, right? So why this term is important though, and it also has limitations, I suppose we will speak about this as well, but why the term is important is that it's, it's a formal term that is recognized by the UN and is part of the international human rights system. And it is a term that demands recognizing those of us who work for human rights, peace and justice, um, gender justice, um, LGBTQI rights, um, or working against colonialism as people who do work that is critical and valuable for societies. And that it, which also recognizes that it is wrong um, within the international human rights um, framework and also illegal to persecute or to criminalize us even if our work is uncomfortable for um, certain nation states and for certain regimes and governments. So um, the formal and the legal weight that this recognition within the international human rights system gives to our work makes it much more um, difficult to dismiss by institutions of power, um, in the way that um, human rights um, defenders and activists are many times dismissed. So it really um, gives a level of formal recognition that uh, has the potential in, in making a difference in terms of, um, in terms of protection and um, sort of the social and the legal position that, that we have uh, within different um, circles, whether it's within the community or the state or the international sphere. So in recent years, you know, we've seen even further increase in authoritarianism and militarization, you know, as well as democratic backsliding in so many areas of the world. And one thing that I think we've observed is that many anti-democratic actors are utilizing overtly misogynist um, as well as racist and anti-LGBT rhetoric and policies as part of their methods of securing and maintaining their power. Um, so I'm wondering how do patriarchy and harmful gender norms impact the spaces that are available for women human rights defenders to do their work um, within this context? And, and also, I guess, building on that, are there some specific examples of this impact on women human rights defenders that might be different than other human rights defenders? First and foremost, uh, you know, this whole uh, gender norms, this whole distribution of, of rules for women and men uh, in, in societies impact uh, uh, certainly women in different manner. If you have a loud voice, if you are outspoken, if you're bold, and if you're uh, saying no, you know, especially saying no as a woman, then that becomes, that triggers a lot of problems and a lot of, you know, uh, that can include, in, in, include a lot of uh, restrictions and limitations for you. 
I think uh, it's also the societal norms and the societal, uh, you know, division of rules that that women and men are being given. Uh, I think another uh, another area that that is quite harmful is the cultural and traditional practices. Uh, this discourages woman engagement, and this discourages women's participation, and and this discourages women to step up, to to be vocal, and to uh, to even speak for themselves. Um, so these are some of the things that that demotivates uh, women's uh, participation and women's engagement. And then uh, the patriarchy itself, like right, the power holders, the power sharing. You have the power. You are a man. That's it. If I'm thinking about different political contexts in which um, you know women human rights defenders and and activists are, are organizing, um, if I'm thinking about very militarized societies, it also means that we as people grow up within those societies, and we grow up with um, uh, military um, sort of militarized notions uh, of gender norms, right of uh, um, very militarized, uh, toxic kind of masculinity and a culture that really um, glorifies violence as, as a way of, of solving an aggression, as a way of, of solving conflicts, right? And what it does to society at large. And of course, we are all products of our societies, women as well. So we know that not all women are feminists. And we also internalize, and then if we do become feminists, we also work to deal with that. I mean, the rise in authoritarianism that we're seeing, especially in the region that I cover, it's not just the rise. That rise has been happening for a long time, but it's the blatancy which we're seeing change. For WHRDs working in these contexts, they're battling just violence online, it is on the streets, it is at home. So the oppressor is in many ways everywhere. And when you go down that path, you wonder why you do it. And you do it because you do it for your sisters. You do it for the spaces that you want to protect, the spaces that have been opened up because others did it. And now you do it and more space opens up and we're here because we can. And sometimes we're here because we can't, even though we can't. So it's not just the harm that it's a sense of isolation that you feel if you are not part of a strong movement. Movements are based on connection and networks and being able to be connected to each other. They take that away through surveillance, through reprisals, through threats, through intimidation. The, the threats that are gendered that I have seen concrete examples of online, the, the kind of violence that I've seen the threats of rape, the sexualized violence online, I don't see in the same way against men. The threats against men are specifically against them and generally do not always extend to family, but because men are identified as their work. So I guess going on to the next question, um, some, some have described women human rights defenders as sort of canaries in the coal mine, women human rights defenders, the way that they're treated by state actors, non-state actors alike, are sort of an indication of these wider levels of violence that could be unleashed on society and also that reflect these underlying things which you were just speaking about. Um, and so at the, at the national level, women human rights defenders often living are living their lives sort of on, on the move or face risks as a result of their work, um, as well as their families. These threats are even happening to women who 
are highly visible. For example, women who have briefed the UN Security Council. So I'm wondering if you could walk us through, first of all, some of the risks that women human rights defenders face as a result of their work, and then who are some of the actors that are responsible for these reprisals um, and what the impacts these have on, on activists? So human rights defenders, uh, they are exposed to different kinds of risks. It can vary from, from uh, where they live, where they work, to personal risks that start from their homes, uh, to the societal risks, and then to the non-state actors and those who are, um, you know, anti-government elements who are, um, who are um, anti-human rights, you know, anti-women uh, uh, actors, for example. Um, the risks include, um, of course, a lot of intimidation and a lot of um, uh, harassment, uh, uh, a lot of, you know, threatening um, letters uh, and threatening actions. The, the state actors, the government actors, can also be threats uh, for human rights defenders, uh, for women human rights defenders. Why? Because, you know, when when they are criticizing the government, they they automatically become uh, a threat for them because they are considered as as a challenge uh, challenging uh, a group of people uh, to the government. Um, and the risks that come from society uh, can include, like you know, um, if if they they are living in a house a rented house, they can be easily. Uh, told to leave the place and evacuate. The family members, unfortunately, you know, family members are also uh, something, uh, sometimes become a threat uh, to, to the work of the women human rights defenders. Yeah, absolutely. Deanne, what do you think? The motivations are to silence, to punish. To silence is one aspect. If it's to punish, it is very different. So reprisals are a very separate set and cannot be conflated with silencing dissent. It is linked and it is very separate. And it impacts women, it is, the impact is gendered. It is not gender neutral. Very often, even if it is a non-state entity, the state mechanism steps in to protect the status quo. The status quo is made up of vested interests that in our region we consider very much the deep state. This is not necessarily elected or the public facing authorities that we have learned to fear or be wary of or are conscious of in terms of violations. The state is very efficient at stepping in and leveling the playing field and being the person, being the group that uh, carries out the reprisals or the threats. Or it is quite efficient at turning a blind eye and making sure that impunity for violations or for threats are, um, is assured. The state might even come in as the savior, uh, but they do very—they do just enough and just little enough to make sure that the threats stick and that women are unable to then move forward. The nature of the reprisals and the way in which organizations uh, reflect and respond is also very gendered. Uh, what do we consider the greatest protection risks? Uh, is it abduction, torture? sorry, enforced disappearance, torture, custodial arrest, um, killings. Uh, do we consider violence online, violence in the home, uh, sexualized violence, uh, and via media labeling um, threats to livelihood, threats to movement as important? 
do we consider those adequate reprisals and is there uh, imbalance in terms of how we see how we see risk and reprisal Anna, what do you think so Berta Caceres, it, uh, who is an indigenous uh, woman human rights defenders uh, whose um, um, life struggle and also her death for, became quite well known and it was also heartwarming to see the solidarity around the world and actions uh, demanding justice for Berta. Um, she was killed um, several years ago already um, when she was uh, fighting a um, hydroelectric dam project on the lands of her indigenous community um, in Honduras. You know, in this case, the interest of, of, of those behind that was is very clear. It was about private profit. Um, and by sort of tracing, you know, from the local company that was building uh, the dam against the wishes of the of the community um, on on, on lands and river that was sacred for the community. Um, you know, you, activists were able to trace it up to the transnational companies involved, the Dutch and the Finnish development banks that were involved. So there is not, so in the world right now, we have about 3000 treaties um, safeguarding the interests of corporations. Um, we don't have even a single treaty to uh, protect human rights in the context of corporate activities. We do live in a world where most of the capital is concentrated in the hands of corporations, transnational corporations rather than nation states. Corporations can also intervene and influence policy in, in, in their interest. And of course, have unlimited resources, which human rights defenders don't have, and women human rights defenders have even less. So we see here the interest is really around maintaining geopolitical domination and maintaining a um, colonial power uh, with, with, with complete impunities. Why is activism and space for free expression so important for peace? And are there any specific challenges faced by activists who are working for peace and disarmament? You know, I, I think like the question of, um, you know, the importance of activism and, and space for free expression and why it's important for peace is really well answered if we just ask it from the other side, which is why passive and quiet citizens are so important for war, right? Um, and I'm thinking why in Russia today, it's illegal to even say war, people are sent to prison for that. So in that sense, really, um, authoritarian regimes or regimes that are maintaining their own forms of colonial control or military occupation over other people uh, really require a um, population that is uh, mobilized to support them. And it is amazing to see the whole machinery um, of producing this kind of citizens through the system of education, through popular culture, through the media, and in that sense, uh, it is not just official censorship, like the example of Russia, but also when you have a media that is allegedly free, but actually is full of people who themselves are extremely nationalistic, and this is part of their journal journalistic pr pr uh, practice, right? They, they, they do feel they are being objective when they just quote everything that the military says and never fact check when you are going against the status quo of your society, you are very isolated. 
um, and you can be perceived as a traitor, uh, not just by the state, but also by the, your own community and your own family. I mean, of course, political, different political contexts are very different, but in many cases, you have um, certain racial and ethnic politics in which some lives worse more than others. And that is also something that you easily see in the Palestinian-Israeli context, right? Like with all the uh, difficulties um, of being a Jewish-Israeli um, activist who is opposing the colonization of Palestine, you absolutely cannot compare it to, um, with a few exceptions, but you can absolutely not compare it to the ongoing killing of uh, Palestinian activists who are fighting for their freedom, um, or just Palestinians killed for being Palestinians. I did. I grew up in Palestine, Israel, but I was I was born in Russia. And seeing the closure of all the all the independent media in Russia, and literally people doing their last broadcast and exiting the studio and just turning the lights off and never know, like not knowing when they will ever be able to go back to doing their job. I'm wondering what you think needs to be done better by people in our in the fields that we're we're working in, you know, are we are we talking about this issue, um, all the issues that we've been talking about in the right places? Um, what are those right places? And yeah, what are ways that this can be? Um, what needs to be done better? Basically, I think there's a definite need to improve uh, outreach. There are groups, and because it is because if you don't do the work in speaking to defenders and asking them. Uh, and talking to them, knowing about their work, what brings them there before the crisis happens and introducing ourselves, that that outreach is critical. Um, uh, building trust is critical. And these are things that we can never do enough of. We do it, but we, we can never do enough of that. I think follow-up is something that is very difficult. And we do try to do that and keep in contact. It's also the most I think I alluded to this earlier. It's about keeping in contact also when times are good. I think in terms of advocacy, we've it's a constant struggle. Where do you pitch it? Where do you start? How do you gender your advocacy, even if it is about issues that, on the face of it, impact all HRDs? How do you make sure that WHRDs are not the paragraph, the additional paragraph, LGBTIQ, WHRDs are not the paragraph that you add into your report on a given context or a conflict or an incident of threat. Holding people accountable, institutions accountable when they fail. And I don't think we do enough of that. We, um, we accept they're not going to respond or they're not going to do this. So they're not going to give an explanation. And there's a real physical cost to that. And then women come together or women mobilize organizations and then we it's resolved and then we move to the next crisis there are these these movements where women are either very visible very present or not don't don't actually have a lot of decision making power you know when it comes to land and environment it's deeply personal it is deeply linked to their livelihood their survival their community survival and they bear the brunt of the fallout. And there's a lot to be done and, and worked out in terms of how much decision-making happens, where decision-making happens, where it's located, the location of different actors. 
without presuming anything. This is where responses start from. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about accountability um, and what are the different ways in which we can ensure that the perpetrators of these threats, these reprisals, this violence are held accountable, as well as the wider systems that enable that violence to exist in the first place? I think there has to be uh, there has to be seriousness in addressing uh, these these uh, these atrocities that are happening. There is there is a need for a stronger uh, reporting mechanism. There is a need for a stronger documentation um, on on uh, these uh, these human rights violations that gross human rights violations that happen. Uh, there is also need for um, for accountability. You know, addressing accountability. In any conflict, some of the conflicts that I have studied as, as, a, as a peace and mediation student, um, something that has been missing has been the accountability comp- component. Um, who holds who accountable completely mess out. Taliban continues fighting uh, and, and uh, committing uh, gross human rights violations, including civilian casualties, for uh, let's say not 20 years, maybe 18, 17 years. Uh, suddenly last year, they took the power and everybody forgot about them. We had witnessed the bloodiest uh, times of the year, you know, during the holy month of Ramadan, for example, in Afghanistan, and Taliban were responsible for it. People were discouraged, people were silenced down, people had to, people fled Afghanistan. These these important actors, you know, human rights defenders, women human rights defenders, they had to leave their country. They had no choice because of the Taliban. But everything was compromised on 15 August when they took the control. The international community forgot about their past atrocities. And that's where, you know, I don't see anything when it comes to the holding, holding different actors into account, right? Holding them accountable. Have you heard, or I haven't heard at least, about the uh, international community, ICC, uh, the UN Human Rights Council, the UN Security Council, talking about dealing with the past, talking about uh, you know investigating the past crimes that the Taliban have committed, that they will be looking, investigating, and they, they will bring well, uh, those perpetrators responsible uh, into account? They are clearly not talking. And then let's also not forget one conflict supersedes the other conflict. Afghanistan's situation is not a priority for international community anymore because Ukraine's situation is there. Very soon, there will be another conflict that Ukraine will be forgotten. That's where the accountability component and the conflicts are always forgotten. And that's where like, you know, everybody has to do better. Uh, I have lost a brother, a brother uh, during the Russian uh, presence in Afghanistan, but nobody even questioned about you know that grievances that we carry for years now over over 40 years that my brother was killed. Nobody cares. Nobody spoke to us. Nobody came and you know said, okay, he was killed. We are very sorry, but what can we do? No, nothing. One conflict comes, another conflict is forgotten, and that's where, um, you know, um, the accountability bit is always forgotten. I feel we have such a long way to go in taking what was put into this sometimes very narrow women, peace and security um, kind of uh, box, and to say we want to bring the anti-colonial agenda into it. Uh, We want to um, 
say it's not about if you, you know, if you select women sitting at a negotiation table, it's actually about the masses of women and, uh, you know, gender diverse folks doing a lot of grassroots work, uh, supporting their communities through it. I think the moment we also bring anti-colonial and anti-imperialist perspective within the women, peace and security agenda, then we also have difficult dilemmas and questions around um, what does self-defense mean? A, a question of how, how do we build solidarity in a situation where resources are distributed unevenly? Yeah, and I, I, I have to say, I feel it's, it's critical to have those conversations so that we are able to connect um, better what is done on international level to the different forms of organizing um, within grassroots movements because um, because I believe in collective power and that together we can we can achieve much more and we have to learn how to do that better and maybe one important thing I do have to say from my experience of engaging specifically with the, this women human rights defenders framework as a framework within the international human rights system is that many times it is really preoccupied with um, protection of defenders, but you don't necessarily look at why are what, what is it that people are willing to, to risk their lives for? Like, what is the cause of struggle? And it's not just about, you know, managing the situation so they can be safer in that process, but also how can we actively be with them in the struggle for which they are willing to risk their lives? And how do we make sure that they win? I want to build on something you were talking about in terms of the threats from government actors. And I have one question on, you know, there's, there are so many states that are really focusing on, you know, preventing extremism and countering terrorism and counterterrorism has become such a huge focus. And we know that that those um, agendas like that, the counterterrorism agenda has a severe impact on human rights. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how Counterterrorism policies are impacting civic space um, and the work of women human rights defenders and with any concrete examples that come to mind as well. I mean, I think we can we can start with the question who has the power to decide who is a terrorist and the way that it is used um, in order to label some groups. US governments and, and many others have historically always seen left movements and, and human rights movements as something they need to have measures to, um, and anti-war movements, right? As something that they need to have very powerful measures to control and to also to crush if it's, um, if it's in their interest. And of course, it also, it has implications on the political standing because it's very difficult then to shake off this label. And it also can have implications on funding because even if, let's say you, uh, you do want to resource human rights movements um, and you want to resource this important organization that does human rights work, it's enough for any kind of institution to label them as terrorists that even if you understand that this is a complete nonsense, there might be something in your own statutory regulations preventing you from resourcing them, even if you understand that this is nonsense. Those issues are political, who has the power to decide, and they have to be also discussed on that political level, which, yeah, is hard to do when, you know, the bomb of the terrorism label is, is bombed, but they have, to, they have to be discussed of 
um, what are the motivations be behind this kind of labeling and who does that and for what political agenda, especially when we are speaking about so many war crimes and you know crimes against humanity on a regular basis going unpunished. I think state extremism is a women's rights issue. State extremism plays out whether the whether irrespective of what hat the extremist who actually throws the first stone, pulls the trigger, is wearing. It's linked. And this is what women have been countering. Extremism, countering extremism, violent extremism, has been seen as a women's rights issue from a very protection space, a very protective space. And women have rightly taken it on at great risk to themselves without and, and seen no give back in terms of increased protection for them even in contexts where things haven't fully fallen apart, where there are functional states where the, you know, the, the extremists are not now running the show. And there is very little protection, there's very little support, there's very little respect for the level of risk that women are taking. Also seen women countering violent extremism in a context in, in where they, they don't believe backing down is a choice that there is a responsibility to their fellow defenders, to the fellow women, to the victim survivors that they've been supporting, that you can't just talk. That is their counter to, their life and their work is the counter to extremist narratives, but I think state extremism is what I fear the most for women. Turning a little bit to other, in terms of other people or actors who could be of support, what are some of the ways in which you have seen men come together in support of the work of women human rights defenders? Um, yeah, I guess in terms of allyship, in terms of um, vocal support for their work. I think the first and foremost thing that men can do is to to uh, to add, you know to consult other men, to mobilize them, to convince them that you know educating girls or women having access to, to work, women having uh, uh, economic, uh, you know, women having a job to economically support her family, uh, a woman uh, to be a doctor, to be a teacher, to be an uh, athlete, to be a journalist is not a bad thing. They can also they can also uh, help in mass mobilization. They they can they can bring other men who uh, who you know join up who, who do campaigns who do awareness who um, who speak up on behalf of uh, women and girls. Um, um, I think what they can also do is they can bring the the religion uh, perspective. What religion says about uh, you know women's. Um, Engagement, women's participation, women's uh, girls' education, and all these things, um, and and those are very important actors. They can be spokesperson for women's rights uh, in a country like Afghanistan. If when I look at them, like you know, we need to see more men talking about women's rights. It's not only our problem. I feel like there's a growing awareness to um, what we call anti-rights actors. So. You know, there's a fundamentalist groups or um, far right groups or ultra conservative groups that are coming to human rights spaces, whether the international um, system at the UN or regional forums, um, in order to campaign against abortion, campaign against LGBTQI rights, campaign against um, you know sexual education, and and and. Um, we have been doing the work of really um, seeing how anti-rights actors are connected globally 
um, and also seeing are co-opting also progressive discourses. Something to flag, which I think is important because as imperfect as these human rights systems are, they have been historically important. It really is important for us to be finding ways to protect their integrity as much as possible so that we are able to continue using them in order to make advances in international law and international legal human rights frameworks. It brings me to the point of how important it is to have spaces for critical feminist conversations. I think I'm, I'm really concerned by you know, many people being exposed to transphobic versions of what the perceived feminism are thinking. This is, well, this is what being a feminist means, right? And, and not being exposed enough to, um, to other forms. So in, in, in that sense, it's, it's, it's really, there's a lot of value in just us coming together to, to have those conversations because it comes back to the point of shaping more public narratives. I'm wondering what else would you like to add to our discussion that I didn't ask about or that we didn't touch on? Or is there any area that we did discuss that you'd like to elaborate more about? I think one area that um, maybe I would like to add is the, I don't know if you can call up Afghanistan current situation post-conflict. I still feel we are, we, are, we are still in conflict because ISIS is unfortunately very active. And, you know, only in one month during Ramadan, we had over 500 uh, civilian casualties uh, killed and, and uh, uh, injured. Um, so in that kind of setting, you know, uh, there are those women human rights defenders who are still in Afghanistan. There are those women human rights defenders who are still um, who still want to uh, you know challenge uh, 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 systematic discrimination that the Taliban are, uh, are uh, putting pressure and imposing on on women. This is where the international community has a very important role and obligation to play. What is international community doing to protect women, especially those women who are in the country? How are you going to help them? Only having a security council meeting or issuing a condemnation is not changing the life of women and girls in Afghanistan. There has to be something more, more serious. There has to be actions. Well, thank you. That was perfect. And um, I couldn't agree with you more. How can our audience follow your work? I have my Twitter account. Uh, it's at Kuria Samira. Uh, the handle is... Um... AWID, A-W-I-D, uh, but also we have uh, some handles in French and Spanish, which you can then find also from the English profile, and the website is awid.org, so A-W-I-D.org. You can also definitely find us on Instagram as well, because we are keeping up with the times. Thank you so much to our guests for sharing your insights on this heavy but critical topic that's fundamental but doesn't get enough attention. Thank you to our listeners for sticking with us throughout the season. If you've missed any previous episodes, you can go back and listen to the full season. Please subscribe, rate, like, and review wherever you get your podcasts and share this episode with your colleagues and friends. You can learn more about WILF on our website, www.wilpf.org and follow us on socials at WILF. This was our final episode, at least for now, 
So huge thanks to the entire WILF team, as well as our colleagues and co-conspirators at Palente Consulting for making this podcast happen. This podcast is a collaboration of WILF's Disarmament Program and Women, Peace, and Security Program. It is hosted by Allison Pitlack, Genevieve Riccoboni, and Zarian Hamid. It is recorded, edited, and produced by Palante Consulting. The song you hear at the beginning of each episode is Youth Group by Picnic Lightning, and all of their music is created by Cameron Navarro. Thank you to all of our guests and to all of you listeners. We'll see you next time. So what do we do with ourselves now?